Hello and welcome. The Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World welcomes you to another episode of our podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia. Join us as we further explore the many legacies of ancient Persia and its relevance to global patrimony. everyone and welcome to another episode of Legacies of Ancient Persia. This week our guest is Dr. Henry Colburn, a research associate at the Kelsey Museum of Archaeology at the University of Michigan and an adjunct faculty member at several institutions including New York University and Bard College. In this episode we discuss finding a way to study the Persians in Egypt while coming from a classics background, how to identify and spot a Persian in Egypt, and assessing the problems in studying Parthian art, especially due to the lack of remaining material culture and sites. Dr. Colburn was having some internet issues, so apologies for the audio quality. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give our show a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm very, very excited about this episode, and I would like to just sort of get us right in and to it. And so I would like to know when your interest in the field of Iranian studies and all that kind of go with that started. Well, I can actually trace it back fairly far. I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, and it didn't have a public high school. It did, however, have a private school, which locals could attend some sort of deal with the town. And it had been founded in the early 19th century as a seminary. And though it had long since given up on that, it still had a Latin requirement as the last vestige of its uh, earlier theological training. And so I took Latin there because I had to. And I loved it. And so when I I went off to university, I studied classics. And I had the intention of becoming a classical ball. It sounds silly now, but... That's what my interest was then. But I quickly became interested in the people that the Greeks and Romans were writing about. Uh, And my first semester ancient history course had large parts of Herodotus assigned to it. And so uh, the Persians were uh, the most prominent and certainly most interesting of those non-Greeks who show up sometimes only in passing classical texts. And I was fortunate that one of the professors there at the University of St. Andrews was Tom Harrison, who actually taught a course on Greeks and Persian. And so I had a fairly rigorous historiographical introduction to studying the Persian. An undergraduate course, but we tackled the basic issues like, why can't you read Herodotus literally? Why is... Aeschylus' Persians, a biased source for studying ancient Persia. And that changed my focus completely. I realized that the only way I would ever be able to study the Persians on their own terms was either to start learning Near Eastern languages or to focus on material culture. I realized that I could not handle any more languages, so material culture it was. And that's what directed my grad school research. So, of course, because my training was classics, all I, I looking at classics graduate programs that could accommodate this kind of scholarship by the University of Michigan. But it means I have a very sort of odd profile, even for somebody who studies ancient Persia. You know, I'm half the time I will describe myself to colleagues as a classist, that's what I teach. That's where most of my schooling. You know, I went to grad school for classical archaeology, and I wrote a dissertation on the Persians, but I don't think I took, I didn't take a class on it. It was stuff that I, I had to learn myself with, with the aid, the, the invaluable aid of my advisor. I feel like that's fairly common, though. Uh, most places, most schools, unless they are... Either IVs are very well known, you're not going to have any kind of department for the ancient Near East, you're only going to have classics, so I feel like that's not the most uncommon, that 
the background is kind of a very formal classical training. And then you add on whatever it is you want to add on. So in doing your own research, I guess, how did you get into the study of Achaemenid Egypt? Did this develop because you liked Egypt? Was it because you just liked the period? Was it almost influenced a bit by your classical training where we have Hellenistic Egypt and you started there and then sort of worked to the Persians? Yeah. So the University of Michigan has a very large papyrus collection. So even though I couldn't take classes on Persian, really, I uh, there were there were many courses and many faculty focusing on Roman Egypt. So I think I realized that Egypt provided the advantage of being a an entire province that I could look at as a whole, which had, at least at Michigan, a number of people who understood historiographical and archaeological challenges of Egypt. You, you can't actually do archaeology in Egypt. And it's also part of the classical world in the sense that, you know, this is a place that had Greeks in it since the archaic period. We have... Herodotus has visited Egypt. I'm sure he did. He would have visited Egypt as a Persian province. So it was a place where my own background was relevant, a place where there was good sort of uh, expertise at Michigan, um, not just my doctoral advisor, but from other faculty as well. And the other thing was that any Egyptologist I talked to about Achaemenid Egypt said, Either it was a great topic because nobody had ever done it, or nobody had ever done it because it was impossible. And both of those things appealed to me. I love the motivation that you get from from people telling you that it, something is impossible, or just <laughs> no, no one's done it. And why would you? Why would you do that? So I I love the motivation that you you drew from it. One of my first graduate seminars at Michigan was on Egyptian archaeology, and I proposed a paper topic on Achaemenid Egypt, and the professor actually laughed out loud. In class, in front of everyone? Yes. Yes. Ooh. Okay. Well, she explained why, and it was because a student had done something similar the last time she'd offered the seminar and had basically had to give up. Mm. And this, I mean, this professor went on to serve on my dissertation committee. I, um, I excavated with her in Egypt. I looked after her cats when she was away. I mean, this is this is a person who uh, of whom I think very highly and uh, who I very much respect. But the reaction just sort of shows sort of how how Egyptologists are accustomed to a particular topic. Sure, sure. Well, okay. Well, once you decided, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, there, there's a lot there, right? There's a lot of okay. So once someone was uh, someone allowed you to do Persians in Egypt. You know, what What drew you once you were able to do it? Was it the art aspect? Was it the cultural aspect? Was it all of it? And how did you go about trying to actually fit that into something like a solid project? Yeah, that was, that was difficult because I think one of the reasons why no one had really done an archaeological study of Persian Egypt before was that the evidence is really varied and it's quite difficult to get even two completely different types of object to answer the same kind of question. You know, so what does a, a ceramic bowl and a Neophorus statue have in common? I mean, not much. So you would get these sorts of individual studies that had tried to tackle various small aspects of the problem. And of course, they had recognized what some of the bigger issues were, but, you know, couldn't really provide any kind of big picture. You know, so for example, the one of the resources I used in writing my dissertation was a, a short paper on late period pottery that basically says, these are the shapes I've identified, but I don't, I don't know what to make of any of it, you know? So, even people who had begun, who had made significant progress on small aspects of the project didn't really know how to uh, put it all into a big picture. And I think that was the one place where I had an advantage over typical Egyptologists is that I came to the project 
with a very specific question, which is, how do we characterize a Caymanid rule in Egypt? And with that kind of big picture question, I could look at a bowl and say, okay, this carinated rim, or a carinated shoulder rather, it's not the rim, this, you know, this profile is, you know, something that we see across the Achaemenid world. And so even though this bowl is made of a local Egyptian fabric and has a flat base, which Achaemenid bowls do not, I can see how it fits into this bigger picture of what's going on in the empire. What you have is somebody perhaps indirectly participating in the empire. And as great as Egyptian, ancient Egyptian ceramicists are, and I should say, ancient Egyptian ceramicists are very brave people. Because their ceramics are very difficult. And they do such incredible and such thankless work. Um, but they, they're not going to necessarily, well, know or even have much interest in that big picture. So that, that allowed me to take these very different types of evidence and try to I try to get them all to speak to the same issue. Huh. And so there's so much there, but I guess where I'll go first is I feel like historians generally, not many have a really great grasp of what's happening cross-culturally, right? You, you, people rarely kind of go out of their region of expertise or time period. So first of all, let me just say that when people know you know, what's happening in one area, you go, uh, okay, I, I guess this is happening here. So I did not, I mean, I'm, I studied the, the fifth century in Greece, right? So I was like, I don't know what's happening in Egypt at that point. Why would I know what's happening in Egypt at that point? And so I feel like this is a very common thing that I hear. So as someone who did not do Egypt one and two did not really get to do anything of the Persians, this may come out and sound a, a bit like a very simple kind of stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is when you have the Achaemenid influence in Egypt, but I also know that this is now very late in Egyptian history. This is sort of the, the last few dynasties or whatever. How much of the Persian influence did actually make its way artistically into Egypt? Because I feel like from what I remember learning Egyptians always resented, right, sort of non-ethnic Egyptian rule. And so being under the thumb of the Persian Empire, I'm sure, is a period that Egyptians themselves would be like, ah, yes, that's not one of our favorite periods to talk about. So was there any kind of resistance to adopting, like, Persian influence at all? Well, there, there are a couple ways to think about this question. And the first is to keep in mind that Egyptian material culture and especially art is generally speaking fairly conservative. You know, um, I mean, there are Egyptologists who can really highlight the differences from one period to another, but if you compare it to really any other ancient artistic tradition, it's very stable. Now, part of the reason for that is that Egypt, throughout all of antiquity, was what we might think of as a sort of a center of social order, a source of charismatic authority, right? So that it's something that attracts people. So for example, when you have the Kushite pharaohs who rule Egypt in the 25th dynasty, they adopt Egyptian royal trappings. They present themselves as Egyptian king. And it is, at least in some part, because Egypt is sort of the a major cultural center at this point. This is this is a place that many people in the ancient world are looking to as a, as a sort of core. And so when you get foreign rulers, Egyptians have in the past well because of this because they they take on these sorts of Egyptian aspects. And the Persians do this as well to some extent. Second, the Persians were never invested in making anyone else into a Persian. And this is because if you look at Persian inscriptions, you see you know, royal inscriptions, you get lists of subject people. And you have the great king's titles, 
also great king. What does that imply? That implies that he's a super king. He's not an ordinary king or king of kings. He's a king who rules over kings. And part of the way they they sort of make this ideology a reality is by maintaining local institutions of kingship, even if there aren't kings there anymore. You know, there isn't an Egyptian king who is separate from the person of the Persian king, but the Egyptian institution of kingship still exists. And so the Persians really value this diversity because it supports this ideology. You know, the like at Naturustam, where it says, you know, if you want to know how many peoples the great king ruled, uh, look at the throne bearers on the relief. You know, they, they so they have no interest in making everyone else into a Persian. And so if you combine, first of all, that Egyptian conservatism, and second, the Persians not having any interest in making anyone else into a Persian, it is remarkable that we see people in Egypt who are still making decisions to become Persian, or at least to sort of, they're, they're creating identities that are Persian and Egyptian. And they sometimes do this using things that are Egyptian material culture, but can be sort of read as Persian. You know, like this funny garment that uh, is sometimes called the Persian garment by Egyptologists. You know, it's a jacket and a, and a long kilt. Well, both of these things exist in Egypt before the Persians. And in fact, they're even attested as a combination before the Persians. But I've argued that under Persian rule, this combination becomes more popular because it looks like Persian clothing. So it's a way to be Persian while still being Egyptian. And what's interesting is that this combination remains popular throughout the Ptolemaic period and into the Roman period. So it doesn't go away. It probably loses some of those associations. It becomes a sort of, um, oh, I don't know, a kind of Egyptian garment. But of course, it's also possible that it retains some of its sort of Persian associations because this had become a an idea in Egypt about what eliteness looks like. And then third, the one thing to be aware of is that you can't really sort of treat Egyptians as a single category of people. Because, you know, we have these people in the Ptolemaic period who are continuing to use this combination of garments. You also have people in the Ptolemaic period who are digging into earlier Egyptian literature and sort of using it as a way to kind of metaphorically condemn Persian rule. In the past, it's been called sort of Egyptian nationalist propaganda, which is not really an accurate way to think about it. But there was a there was there were certainly people who resented any kind of foreign incursion and Persians especially. So the garment is quite interesting. I don't yeah. No one tells us about that. But <laughs> I, I would say maybe garment aside, so then how did one spot a Persian in Egypt? That's an excellent question, and it's not really something we can easily answer. Did the Persians just go around in a kilt the way the Egyptians did? Uh, it seems a little unlikely, but not impossible. I mean, some of the some of the point of Egyptian costume is in fact to deal with the climate, and you know, some Persian dress choices are not going to work in Egypt, at least not year round. But there would have been other things. I mean, Persians would have had beards. And the iconography tells us that Egyptians, by and large, did not. You see some mustaches, but no beards. The Egyptians, we all, again, based on the iconography, we see Egyptians with shaved heads. Not all the time, um, but this is something that is often associated with priestly offices. Uh, again, with the Persians, we don't see any indications of a lack of hair in any kind of iconographic setting with Persians are very pro-hair, head hair, beard hair, all of it. But it's it's important to recognize, too, that there probably was not any significant number of Persians in Egypt at any given time. I mean, for example, the Persian satrap Arshama was satrap of Egypt for decades in the second half of the fifth century. The direct evidence we have for him are letters he was sending to his subordinates in Egypt from wherever else in the empire he was. 
So he had people who could take care of things. He wasn't actually there, as near as we can tell. And the other sorts of evidence that we would use to try and find individual Persians is actually kind of difficult. You know, a Persian name does not necessarily mean a Persian person. We have lots of mixed names in the demonic and Aramaic papyri. And, you know, not just mixed Egyptian and Iranian, but Egyptian and Jewish, you know, Phoenician, all sorts of things. So I would say that certainly you could probably spot a Persian in Egypt, but what you necessarily meant when you said, when you were thinking of spotting a Persian in Egypt, it's not necessarily, you know, would say somebody from Bactria, probably he'd be called a Persian in Egypt. You know, it's it's hard to say, really. If it's complicated now, I'm sure that it seemed a bit complicated back then as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, yeah, it, 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 all, it also depends on, you know, you're right, like a very subjective view of, well, when you say this, what are you imagining in your head? Because it's probably very different from what someone else has in their head. And so I guess that, that reminds us we have to be careful when we say, these these sort of general blanket ideas of what does this person like look like or what do these people look like so i think that's something very important to remember for sure yeah we we think of persian and egyptian as very distinct categories but they may not have been so much in antiquity or there may have been a kind of a sort of a much larger gray area than we can really than than we can see from all the way up here in the present well, and it's interesting, just even from what I do remember learning a little about the Persians from the Greek side, going through school, you you have these sources and these tales of Greeks saw Persians and they had the, the they were famous for having the, the pants, right? The, the weird pants where they go, oh, what type of people would wear this? This looks so terrible and uncomfortable. Any self-respecting man will wear a, will wear a skirt. But again, thinking about climate, in Egypt, it's really hot. Mm. You're not going to wear pants the way you might in northern Greece. You're just not going to do it. So it is it is quite interesting to remember that, that geography also plays a big role in what do the people there think that the outsiders are, are going to look like based on what they wear. So, yeah, no, it's a fascinating subject. Fascinating. Although because of the climate being different from other places that the Persians were, did that play any role on also not having a lot of Persians down in Egypt? Because, oh, it's too hot. I don't I don't enjoy this. I, I don't get to wear sort of the more um, traditional Persian clothing that, that, you know, covers a bit more. Well, I'm guessing most of the Persians were in Egypt, that is, Persians from Persia who were in Egypt, probably did not have a whole lot of choice of matter. You know, they had probably been sent there by a higher authority. I mean, I'm sure, too, that they were Persians who went there by choice. But, of course, we don't have evidence for that because that's not going to leave a paper trail this way, right? I mean, we know we know so little about the activities of private people in the Persian Empire, because most of the bureaucracy uh, that generates all the documents we have is a government bureaucracy. So there's just so little to give us any kind of hint of why Persians would go to Egypt for any reason other than material business. And I'm sure they must have. I'll tell you why. Huh. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. It's fascinating to think about, but again, answers, especially when you're dealing with material culture, don't always yield exactly what you would like, but sometimes it's, it's I don't know, that's where the divide, right, between material culture and the literature comes in, right, where you'll have some and then not others, and then you have to sort of navigate around around uh, what you may have from one or not the other, so, and then it's filling in a lot of gaps as well. I mean, another way to answer that question is to think about the reasons Greeks went to Egypt. And according to Herodotus, Greeks go to Egypt as tourists, as merchants, or as mercenaries. And I could see Persians doing all of those things. I'm going to pivot us to the Parthian art project that you had mentioned earlier. So 
can you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. So my first book was on coming to Egypt, and that came out a few years ago now. When that was being published, I started uh, hunting around for a second project, and I realized, first of all, I had said everything I had really intended to say about Egypt. So I see that as an area to working in. I keep getting pulled back into Egypt uh, various times. But I was looking for something that was similar in the sense that it could build on my, you know, my my deep background in classics. And not forget that I also uh, teach a lot in classics and, and employed by classic departments regularly. Something that a classicist would recognize healing aspect. And at the same time, I was actually working at the Metropolitan Museum in a, I had a curatorial fellowship and a fair bit of material I was working with as part of that was their, their collection of Parthian art, which is pretty good. And like most Parthian art, not really well studied. So I began delving into Parthian art generally. And I realized that a lot of what I had learned about the Achaemenids is actually relevant to studying the Parthians as well. The historiographical problem is pretty similar in that there's tendency, and I mean historically, not necessarily right now, the Parthian art as a sort of offshoot of Greek art, rather a kind of failure to replicate Greek art, um, perhaps even barbarized. This is what Winkelmann said about Parthian point. But the one sort of voice in the wilderness, Hale Rothstadtseth, who wrote an essay that was published in 1935 called Dura and the Problem of Parthian Art. And I say essay, it's 150 pages of text, basically a book. And at the time, he was excavating a Dura Europa area, which is best known as a sort of Roman site. I mean, that's how I had learned about it was context of Roman imperial, Roman archaeology. Uh, but before the Romans conquered it, it had been a Parthian town on the western edge of the Parthian Empire for centuries. And Rostovsev's argument was that you could see not necessarily Parthian art per se there, but you could see the impact of Parthian art there. And so I came to realize that this essay, despite the fact that most of the details in it now are really wrong, it's a combination of us knowing Dura Europus much better now than in 1935. And secondly, Rostovsev was actually really not concerned with the details of his argument. He was really concerned with the big picture. And so some of the, some of the details, I think, were not necessarily as well thought out as they could have been. You know, there are definitely some methodological issues there. But his big picture, I think, is actually how we need to continue to think about Parthian art. And in, in three ways in particular. So first, he sees Parthian art as a sort of cogent phenomenon, right? So, and to compare that to Achaemenid art, at one point, Achaemenid art was frequently described as eclectic, right? Because it drew on multiple artistic tradition. And now we recognize that it's not eclectic. It's very deliberately creating a sect by drawing on those traditions. Rostovsev, back in 1935, assumed that Parthian art must be the same way. Again, he assumed it. He didn't actually say it, but it's it's clear from, from his discussion of the material in the essay. And he says explicitly that, of course, we don't have any Parthian capital that give us cogent artistic programs. So, you know, for the Achaemenids, we look at Persepolis, we know what Achaemenid court art looks like, carved there and those wonderful reliefs. Don't have anything like that for Parthian. Now, since 1935, Old Nisa has been excavated, and the material from Old Nisa is tremendous. So we've got fantastic art from there. Though it's still difficult to interpret it because it's all from a secondary context. So we don't really know what old Nisa would have looked like under Parthian rule. The way that we know what Persepolis looked like under Achaemenid rule. And of course, the part of the reason why we don't have Parthian capital 
because the Thanians demolished them very, very thoroughly. Rostov says, second assumption is that style, that is, style of Parthian art is deliberate. Parthian art has this interesting kind of progression where in the beginning, it actually looks a fair bit like Greek or Achaemenid art and that it uses sort of molded musculature, that sort of thing, um, three-dimensional detail, that kind of stuff. And yet by the end of the Parthian Empire, it's uh, very linear, almost abstract. And Rostovsev says this is because Parthian aesthetics have changed, whereas the traditional argument is that the Parthians bad at art and just got worse. And then the third thing is that he believed that you, that you could study Parthian art by looking at how it affected other artistic traditions. So in places like Dura Europa or Palmyra, but also in the East, places like, like the art of the Kushans in Central Asia. And again, this is not a simple process, but we see this for the Achaemenids. I mean, this is one of the main arguments I made in my book on Egypt, is that we can see the impacts of Achaemenid art and material culture in Egypt. And they are often culturally you know, embedded in Egyptian culture, but they're there. And so this must be true of Parthian art too. So some of my goal is to demonstrate this, and I've, I've done this in some papers that are forthcoming and you know, will be impressed forever the way they are. But what I'm really tending to do is to uh, essentially republish Dura and the Problem of Parthian Art, but with additional material that sort of makes this Rostovsev's big picture clear and sort of explains how we can use this essay to address the problem of Parthian art, which is a real problem. And is it just Parthian era art that has this issue, or is this an issue that affects other periods of art as well? Oh, it's, I imagine it's quite widespread. It depends on really what your, what the center of your artistic tradition is. So for example, Assyrian art, Neo-Assyrian art is reasonably straightforward to characterize because we have Assyrian capital. And so when we find things that use Assyrian iconography or Assyrian style that are outside of that, we can sort of use that as a way of talking about well, what is Assyrian art, what is the influence of Assyrian art, and so on. And, you know, of course, with Greek art, we have such a, well, I'd say we have a clear picture of what Greek art is. We've, in fact, we have a nuanced picture of Greek art. We can tell you what it is at intervals of a century. You know, we know it that well. But as a result, it tends to overshadow other artistic traditions. I mean, you can, I think some of these issues would apply equally, say, to Etruscan art, where, you know, traditionally it is defined in terms of corresponding Greek traditions you know the fact the chronology of etruscan art for a long time just followed the chronology of greek art just i mean it's scholarly laziness but you know people working on etruscan art now are really recognizing how just that superficial similarity to greek art is not sort of a simple relationship of imitation it's much more complicated than that i've never thought about it that way but that's a very interesting way to think about it and also, just because from my own experience, it's quite funny, I went into a museum of Etruscan art, and I actually could not distinguish it from Roman art. I just, I walked in and just said, this is this is Roman, right? And got a very interesting look shot my way, and then was told, no, this is the Etruscan art section. So, of course, I sort of said, ah, of course, right, how stupid of me. My apologies. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's that's how sort of that's how these learn to study these artistic traditions. That we sort of start from the known material: Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, Assyrians, and everything else is sort of defined in relationship to in relation to them. And at the outset, that makes sense. That is a way to organize material that otherwise doesn't make sense. But that's also a creates significant limitations on how you can actually interpret the material. You know, you need to remember that this is this is the way we think about this material in the present. 
This is not necessarily how it was understood in the past. And I guess, so excuse my unfamiliarity with this period of Persian history. And and I have also not really any familiarity with the Sasanians afterward. But since they have no remaining capitals, which were destroyed. And again, this may sound like a dumb question, but again, did not study this. So we have a lot of evidence of accumulated art that survives. And when people see it, they go, oh, it's lovely and wonderful. And it looks amazing. And we still have it. So what was it that made the Sasanians really want to thoroughly destroy and wipe evidence of Parthian art kind of off the uh, proverbial map? Well, it was part of their their ideology. And I'm, you know, the, the Sasanians are the ancient Persian empire uh, about which I know the least and about which we certainly have the most information. So. The depth of my ignorance on the Sasanians is fairly substantial. But as I understand it, and I should say that this is uh, an argument that, that Matt Kanepa has made, The Iranian Expanse, which is a great book, really valuable for, for understanding this problem in particular. The Sasanians were essentially, they're essentially rewriting the past in mythical terms. And so... For example, if you look at, say, medieval Persian literature, we have no Parthians, and the Achaemenids are barely recognizable. Instead, we have we have mythical kings, you know, the Kyanid dynasty. And the Sasanians were sort of really setting themselves up as the kind of the real world, and in their view, you know, modern successors to this mythical history. And to do this, they were effectively wiped away the remnants of their of the Parthians who don't fit into this. There's some of it too is perhaps that the Parthians are not Persians. They're not from Persia. So I think that, you know, for, they could see the Achaemenids, you know, leave reliefs in in Persia and in the regions around Persia. They can sort of reinterpret these as the remnants of these mythological kings. But the Parthians, you can't fit them into this at all. And of course, it's convenient too to kind of wipe away Ardashir, the first Sasanian king, uh, was for a time a Parthian vassal revolted. So it was kind of convenient to forget that as well. It's quite interesting because I can see where, and this is, I guess, where I would have to, to be able to sort of make sense of it, bring in a, a little of my own sort of more modern political experience. But it's interesting because I'm like, okay, on the one hand, it makes sense that. Yes, if you're trying to build this new history and this mythology for your empire, your people, you you do kind of want to sort of wipe away the, the elements from before that don't really fit your narrative. But at the same time, it, when you do that, you do want to link yourself sort of ethnically and geographically, all these things to kind of the place you're lay, laying claim to. But but it's interesting because the, the Achaemenids weren't super native either. I mean, I feel like, wouldn't they want to link themselves way, way back if they were trying to? Oh, but they did. So first of all, the Achaemenids, you know, the Persians themselves probably lived in what is today Fars province throughout the Iron Age of France. I mean, we can't really say when they came there, but it seems very likely they were there throughout the Iron Age. And then secondly, they are very much tying themselves to the Elamite tradition as well. I mean, the first Persian king, Cyrus, he's king of Anshan, which is an Elamite city. It's in Persia, but it's an Elamite city. It's one of the major cities of the, of the kingdom of previous millennia. You know, they adopt Elamite as an epigraphic language, as an administrative language. Yeah, an Achaemenid glyptic, certainly as we see it at Persepolis, has many, many strong ties to late Achaemenid glyptic as we see it at Susa. So I think the Achaemenids were, were certainly sort of linking themselves to the Elamites. And, you know, the prominence that the Elamites have at Persepolis is, I think, also part of this. I guess, yeah. I mean, again, ignorance with the general history. But yeah, no, I figured because I, from, from what I have learned and what I, what I remembered in a different conversation was you know i i assume that the elamites were sort of like a, a unicorn right of the ancient world like a like a one-off because they were really native right to the iranian plateau and then everyone after sort of came in and tried to sort of 
tie themselves to it, but since they weren't originally from there. It's interesting how more people from later eras seeing, you know, who who wanted to sort of identify with the Elamite tradition because they were there and, and who sort of didn't. But also that's just Elamites being unicorns back then. So you never know who wants to associate themselves with them and, and who didn't. So, you know, it's it's probably it, it definitely is a lot more complicated than that. I just don't know enough to delve into that, unfortunately. But it's interesting. So the so the Sasanians definitely wanted to sort of obliterate the, par- the evidence of the Parthians and, and tie themselves further. But I mean, when the Parthians were in power, was there an attempt to do the same or not with the previous empire? Well, I don't think so. And of course, it's difficult to say much about Parthian royal ideology uh, just because of the limitations of our evidence. But I think that Parthians really drew on both Achaemenid and on Seleucid models to sort of create their version of kingship. You know, and I think the ivory rita from Old Nisa are a nice indication of this because the Ritan is a, you know, a fundamentally Achaemenid thing. If it was not outright invented by the Achaemenids, and I think it may have been, it was certainly favored by them as a sort of royal drinking vessel and a symbol of connection the core of the empire and yet if you look at the the old nisa writer they also have a great deal of greek imagery centaurs the um, overturned amphoras they have dionysiac scene dionysus is actually an important part of Seleucid uh, royal ideology and so these these writer i think are the best evidence that the parthians are are using both of these models, the Caymanid and Seleucid, to create Parthian kingship. Huh. Now, I'm going to ask you just to present us with a little bit of exposition, because who doesn't love some exposition? So you have two very different interests, and I've asked you about both of them, which, and they're both so interesting, but they're both so very different. Achaemenid Egypt is very different, Parthian art, very different from each other. So I want to create the bridge going from one to the other. Was this like a natural progression or was this you had two separate interests and you just decided that you were going to pursue each of them differently? Well, I got into the Parthians in part because of my antiquity. You know, the sort of the problem of, say, finding a Caymanid in from Egypt, for example, are very similar to the problems of finding Parthian art anywhere. You know, the scale is different, but it's there from a sort of methodological standpoint, uh, they're actually fairly similar topics. In fact, I've even I've even written a paper that makes that connection clear. You know, in both cases, you are dealing with an artistic tradition whose effects are not readily discernible because they are essentially embedded in local local cultural institutions. You know, they, they have been transformed or reinterpreted by different local people, or they've been sort of, they've used local practices or local materials, think back to that Persian garment from Egypt, uh, as a way of expressing a, a Achaemenid or Parthian identity. The problems are very similar. Yeah, I can see a very thematic tie. And it's it's quite brilliant. It's quite amazing that what seem initially to be completely different ideas in, in different time periods and different subjects. Yeah, thematically, they, they're, they're incredibly similar. And that's it's quite remarkable what you've been able to do with that. Because I feel like it requires a different way of thinking. Well, the material is different. And, you know, the big challenge for me is that there's just a lot of, a lot I don't know about the Parthians, and a lot I don't know about the scholarship on the Parthians. I'm catching up with that as best I can. But, you know, I, I delved into my museum work, what got me, you know, sort of got me my, my primer in Parthian material culture. I worked first at the Harvard Art Museums, then met. So I kind of had a running start on the topic. That's true, and that, that I'm sure was a, a really big bonus, but at the same time, I don't know, because it just got me thinking, because I, I picked up a minor in art history and archaeology, and I felt that it 
it allowed me different avenues to look into things in a way where if I wanted to look at the actual history, it, it wouldn't allow me to because there's something about, you know, being able to study, you know, something physical, the material culture. But then also, while you can study an artifact itself and look at it from that sort of frame of mind, if you don't have the full sort of historiographical picture, right, it can make it a bit harder. And so there is a degree of catch up. And I I don't know, like, it seems both like it could be an advantage and a disadvantage that you have the skills to study the artifacts, and it doesn't really matter what time period, but then when you want sort of to, to build the larger narrative of the history behind it, you do have to fill in gaps. I mean, is, have you know, has that actually been as big of a challenge as I, I think it would be? Or, or is it not actually as hard as, as that? Well, the historiography is not that complicated. In fact, it's largely the same accumulated, um, at least general outlook. The historiographical problems are very similar. What I need to learn, first of all, is just more of the more of the basic details. I mean, I need to look at simplest sense. I need to look at more stuff. Actually, the key skill for any art historian and archaeologist is to look at stuff. Not not even a skill, but something you just have to do. And there's a lot of Parthian stuff or stuff that could be Parthian that I still need to look at. And the other thing is that I'm not you know, some genius who's had this aha moment that do things about Parthian art. In fact, there are a lot of people doing really excellent, really interesting work on the Parthians now, from a variety of angles, including you know, archaeological work, uh, numismatics, that sort of thing. And that's the material that I need to, I need to, to learn that material as well. But that's also part of the process. It's interesting to hear what you think you need to be able to do more to progress just because I think these are questions that like other students who might be interested in kind of doing the same thing as you would probably want to know as well, which is, you know, oh, okay, well, I want to do this and I like this, but I don't know. Do I need to focus on the history? Do I need to just look at the stuff? So I think that's really valuable to, to know, you know, how, how you can learn more and keep going because it is really interesting. And I, and I hope that, you know, you publish a lot more things <laughs> so we can learn a lot more. But I, you know, I, I also, there, there was definitely more I wanted to ask you about that I unfortunately have run out of time for. Interested in learning more about the wonders of ancient Persia? Visit the UCLA Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran. The Gazetteer digitally preserves famous locations, world heritage sites, and lesser-known areas from all time periods of ancient Iranian history. You can explore using the interactive map, or visit the encyclopedic catalog for updates to the ever-growing list of archaeological sites. Visit www.arangazetteer.ucla.edu and learn more about what the Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran has to offer. So instead, I'm going to pivot and ask you, there are two questions that I generally have been and asking to sort of end the podcast. And the first of which is, what, in your opinion, is the greatest legacy left to us from ancient Persia? Hmm. Well, I'm going to give you a biased answer and say high-speed mail delivery. And why is it biased? Because one of my first articles was on this subject. I think that it's been... uh, it's an article which I think has uh, counted for most of my um, uh, recognition. <laughs> and just for the audience members who may not be familiar with that article, would you just give us a short summary of it? Oh, it's called Connectivity and Communication in the Achaemenid Empire. It's basically the, about how, despite its vast size, the Achaemenid Empire was closely interconnected by roads and also by a relay postal system. And I mean, the, the whole reason I wrote the article was to justify my further studies of how looking for, say, the influence of the Achaemenid court in a place like Egypt, right? They're thousands of miles apart, but they're also closely connected. So that was the argument. Wonderful. Well, I'm sure hopefully maybe other people will go and read it now because it does seem like 
a great thing to have left us with. And it was impressive because this empire was huge and that's a lot of land to cover. So to have something feel interconnected is very, very impressive. So the second and final question that I will ask you then is what do you think would be the best legacy that we ourselves can leave for future students of Iranian studies? Well, I think that, and then this will also be a biased answer from somebody trained as a classicist, which is, I think that we ought to dismantle the sort of intellectual apparatus of the ancient world, because this whole idea of classics is racist and absurdly reductive. The reason why I never had any classes on the Persians as an undergraduate why I was you know, I was very lucky to have one, and even as a graduate student, have it. You know, and it's because we sort of we understand the Greek and Roman worlds to be sort of the center of antiquity, and there are long-standing historical reasons for that, but they're all bad reasons. And if we could sort of dismantle the intellectual apparatus of classics, it would make it a lot easier for people who are interested in other ancient people like the Persians. Yeah, I would love to see a social experiment and see if that does improve sort of the numbers for people studying things outside of Greece and Rome and to an extent Egypt. Still a very small field, but bigger than than others. So yeah, it would be an interesting social experiment to see what would happen if we did this. Yeah, I would I would I would really love to see what what that would look like. So, I did kind of lie. There's one more question I will ask you, and that is where can people find you if they would like to find and read your work and follow your exploits? Uh, I have uh, a, I maintain a site on Humanities Commons, which is probably the easiest thing. Great. Well, we will make sure to link that in the show notes so people can go and find it and follow you and see what you're up to and hopefully get updates on on the projects that you're working on. So I want to thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this morning. It's been delightful to, to speak with you and learn a little bit more about the cool things that you're studying and all that goes into it. And I hope that we will see you again soon. Well, thanks for having me, Let's see. Legacies of Ancient Persia is a Port of Oud podcast production, hosted and edited by Lexi Henning, with select episodes co-hosted by Marissa Stevens. Cover art provided by Hadley Leesman and original music by Brent Arhart. Established in 2017 as the premier research center for the study of ancient Iran, the mission of the Port of Oud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is to engage in transformative research on all aspects of Iranian antiquity, including its reception in the medieval and modern periods, by expanding on the traditional domains of old Iranian studies and promoting cross-cultural and interdisciplinary scholarship. Thanks for listening to our show. It's available to stream on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Portavood Institute and at Portavood UCLA. Or visit our website, portavood.ucla.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review us. For podcast inquiries or questions about the Portavood Institute, please email us at portavoodpodcastproduction at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue our deep dive into the legacies of ancient Persia.